Hey, and welcome to Cream of Caroline, the most authentically Southern casserole lifestyle podcast recorded in New York City. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Today's episode is all about Southern cooking and Southern cookbooks. And for that, I invited Ted Lee, one half of the Lee brothers, to talk about growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, finding food as a career, selling peanuts, writing books, and recording food history before it fades. Ted, by his own admission, is not a casserole connoisseur, but I promise we'll keep it creamy. What's in the oven? Three casseroles today from South Carolina Cooks, two of which are coming from the 1983 Southern Living Annual Recipes Cookbook, and a third from Princess Pamela's Soul Food Cookbook. You'll hear a lot more about that book later in the episode. So, in ascending order of deliciousness, turn to page 255 of the Southern Living Cookbook for creamy celery casserole from Mrs. Robert Boyer of Somerville, South Carolina. For this, we combine two cups of blanched celery with one can sliced water chestnuts, a third of a cup slivered almonds. Put all that in a baking dish and top with one can of mushrooms. Prepare a velouté with butter, flour, half and half, and chicken broth. Pour that creamy mixture on top of the vegetables and finish with a sprinkle of Parmesan. Bake at 350 for 30 minutes. Next, page 279 for Cabbage au Gratin from Francis Seaboland of Pomeria, South Carolina. Shred one medium cabbage and blanch that in salty water for five minutes. Drain thoroughly and place the cabbage in a greased baking dish, as shallow as possible. Uh, then you're going to toss a half a cup of panko breadcrumbs with two tablespoons of melted butter. Keep that to the side. In a larger bowl, combine one can of cream of celery soup, a quarter cup milk, one cup of cheddar cheese, salt to taste, and pepper. Spread that creamy mixture on top of the cabbage. Put the breadcrumbs on top of that and bake for 20 minutes. And finally, this pork spoon bread from Princess Pamela's Soul Food Cookbook. We're gonna brown one pound of ground pork sausage, drain and reserve the fat, and return the meat to a skillet with one teaspoon of salt, three quarters of a teaspoon of ground sage, and then add to that two cups canned tomatoes, a quarter cup minced onion, a quarter cup minced celery, and simmer for about 10 minutes. Stir in three quarters of a cup of cornmeal along with one cup of milk. It's kind of like grits here, but super chunky. And we're gonna cook that until thickened. In a separate bowl, beat three eggs with a quarter cup of the reserved pork fat. Now you may need to add some butter or drippings here to get to the quarter cup. Once that's combined, stir the egg mixture into the cornmeal and pour it into a greased casserole dish. Top with cheese, if you love yourself, and bake at 375 for 45 minutes. And that's what's in the oven. Casseroles in the news. Cream regulars, unfortunately, I have to tell you today that we are skipping casserole news this week. I know you're disappointed, but all the casserole internet cares about right now is giving you unnecessary recipes for your Thanksgiving leftovers. A, I know you've eaten them by now, and B, I know that you know what to do with your leftovers. And in case you forgot, it's as simple as this. Throw everything into a food processor with mayonnaise, shape it into a party ball, and serve it to your 
best friends with Triscuits. And that's your not really newsworthy casseroles in the news. Okay, listeners, we have today, I'm a little nervous to actually cook and feed this human, Ted Lee, cookbook author, boiled peanut salesman. Hello, welcome. Thank you, Caroline. It's great to be with you. I know. We haven't hung out in a while. I know. Uh, You've been on book tours and working on probably one million projects. Yeah, working on a couple of things. Just a few? Not too crazy. No? Yeah. Well, I want to get started. Everybody, I feel like everybody who knows you knows that you grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. That's correct. But you, your parents weren't Southern, right? That is also correct. That's the thing is that I um, grew up in the South, but I moved there from New York City in 1979 when I was eight years old. I don't think I knew that. You can now do the math. I can do the math. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm almost 50, but okay. before I was 10, we moved from the Upper West Side of Manhattan to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, for those who are familiar with it, to Rainbow Row, um, a stretch of East Bay Street where all the houses are different pastel colors, like townhouses, row houses, the old tenement district of Charleston. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of the story of my life is the guy who writes cookbooks from the South, but doesn't have a Southern grandmother. Okay. Now, but how quickly did you adopt Southern food? What, what kind of meals did your mom make? Did she dive in? Did you guys go out to eat? It's a great question. I mean, I truly believe that the reason why, um, my brother and I became oriented toward food and to writing about food is that when you experience sort of a culture shock that we did at the age that we did. No, Upper West Side to Charleston in (laughs) um, 1979. It was a really interesting um, transition in the sense that I don't think I'd ever peeled a shrimp before we moved to Charleston. I'd never tied a drop line around a chicken neck and dropped it off a dock and reeled in a blue crab, I'd certainly never shucked an oyster. I'd probably never eaten an oyster. Um, But when we arrived in Charleston, all that kind of knowledge to our peers was Mm -hmm. just, they already knew all this stuff that was related to food. And it really... Like, that was the thing that was super compelling. You know, that was the thing that was, you know, there's a lot when you're processing that kind of culture culture shock at that age that's sort of disorienting, but the food parts were super interesting. So like, there were just a bunch of kids running around with chicken necks, dropping them off of, de- like, docks? Yes. I mean, <laughs> not, you know, on a daily basis, but on the weekends. And in season. And, and you know, and also kids knew where the mulberry and fig trees were Mm -hmm. um and we definitely weren't thinking of them as food but rather projectiles oh no Um, but still like you knew where the fig and mulberry trees were you know like that was that was sort of um when you grow up in a place like charleston where the rites of passage sort of are tied to food in lots of ways even though it may be couched as sport you know it's like you're gigging for flounder mm-hmm. or, you know, you're learning how to throw a cast net off the dock and catch shrimp. You tend to grow up with a, a sort of 
food knowledge that for us being New Yorkers was super exotic, super compelling. And to our friends who were Charlestonians was just like, whatever, like yeah. this is what we do. And I think that sort of being outsiders in that food culture was what drew us later to sort of become people who, you know, 20,000 steps later became <laughs> food writers. Now, but did your mom cook? Yes, she did cook. And my parents both, I mean, they're, they, for them, cooking was, um, they're both academics. Okay. Uh, they're both uh, teachers of sort. My dad's professor of medicine and a gastroenterologist. And my mom's uh, an English teacher turned school administrator. And for them, teach, you know, cooking was sort of a hobby. And they had, um, you know, Mater Joffrey on the shelf and the New York Times cookbook. And, you know, for them, they were sort of ambitious in that way but we always had like a meat a vegetable and a starch oh yeah we had double starches at our house it was like rice rice and bread pasta and really oh yeah really oh no bread really wasn't a thing it was just like the plate with the meat the starch and and it was a lot of like thin cut pork chop Mm -hmm. or you know things like that uh what about casseroles casseroles it's interesting you asked about casseroles, and casseroles were not a huge part of growing up. Um, although my mom had a friend who was a caterer, and he had this chicken tetrazzini, and that was like a go-to. Chicken tetrazzini. Okay, fabulous. Now, and when did when did you and Matt start mm-hmm. cooking, your brother? Were you always involved um, in the kitchen, or was this like a later... We, it's weird, because... Actually, in the the most recent cookbook which we did, which was not that recently, but 2013, Mm -hmm. um, the Lee Brothers Charleston Kitchen, there's a picture of us at, um, like, Kids Cooking Camp, which was a tiny little camp. I think there were four students, and my brother and I were two of them, and it was on the Upper East Side. Um, That was back when we were in the... It was a great graduating class. Yeah, it was a great graduating (laughs) class. Um, uh, And we were making pizzas. Um, No, you know... Um, we didn't really get folded into the food economy of the family until we were teenagers. Mm-hmm. But it turned out my mom couldn't really find a job at where she wa- had been where she was in New York. So she ended up commuting back to New York for work. And, um, you know, it was fairly um, unconventional um, yeah. in the sense that, you know, there, there wasn't a direct flight at the time. So she would fly the Piedmont jet through Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, on Monday morning and then come back on Friday night. Being gone during the week left open the, you know, like... Who's going to cook? Who's going to cook? And it wasn't necessarily us who cooked, really, but we were basically my dad's um, prep chefs. Yeah. Um, And we also were folded into the shopping, which which I think to this day is like if you get over all the embarrassments there are at the fish counter when you ask for a pound of shrimp and he's like do you want them peeled and deveined do you want them shelled do you want you know if you just get through that fog of like what it's like to shop for food when you're a teenager it's a lot easier as an adult to like and for a lot of men too there's you know when women bear the burden of dinner men are like oh i'll cook right and they're like so what do we what do we have? Right, right. <laughs> Not the meal planning right, or right. the oh we have a little bit and of like X left. I'd like to use up the it, it and, makes your brain it orients yeah. your brain for planning. Oh, yeah. I, I my, love it. 
my father was a very enthusiastic cook, so he and he, he liked it, but you know he he would get home at like seven, and so you know something would have to be sort of advanced, like right. the pot of rice had to be cooked, and you burned your first pot of rice, and then you discovered that you know you need to turn the flame down after you put the top on, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so those kinds of early sort of kitchen lessons were sort of gotten rid of when we were um, late teenagers. And we, we also had a, an uncle at the time who's uh, a restaurateur, and he was a huge influence on our lives because okay. he seemed to live the coolest life imaginable. Um, and was he in Charleston as well, or no? no? Westchester? No, or? no. Okay. He was in, it's a, it was a long, long, circuitous road for him too, but he was in Toronto at the time. Okay. And he was a partner of... Um, the restaurateur Joe Allen in opening the Joe Allen oh, and wow. the Orso restaurants in Toronto, and then they later split the partnership. And we, he ended up being a very big influence in the sense that you know we would go work for him in Toronto in August when it was infernal in Charleston, mm-hmm. like so hot. We our parents would ship us up there, and we'd do whatever odd job he needed to do, and. Um, and especially when we had our driver's licenses at age 15, mm-hmm. that was really helpful. Um, and then he would take us out for experiences at night, you know, usually ones that we weren't necessarily. Old like my parents more, right. had no idea that, like, <laughs> I had my first sip of a Negroni at age 15, right. you know, on the bar stool at Orso, you know, in Toronto. Um, That's like a great, a great uncle. Yeah. And so I guess there were a lot of different ways that food came into our lives in a way that would sort of set us up for when post-college we were just like oh what the hell are we going to do you know sort of we we ended up moving to New York after college trying to sell boiled peanuts to bars and restaurants in New York City and that was a complete failure so we sort of moved back to Charleston set up a mail order catalog and was the mail, is the mail order catalog still alive? Yes. 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 It's still at boiledpeanuts.com. Oh, my god! And people are always like, how did you get that URL? And I'm like... We bought if, it in. <laughs> if you were, if you were um, insane enough to open a business selling boiled peanuts by mail order in the spring of 1994, you got the <laughs> URL. Like, you got the URL you wanted. But Boil Peanuts, not a business for New York City selling to chefs. Well, yeah. To, well, <laughs> well the, that's, it's so hard to under, to sort of explain, like, the only... There were so many, quote-unquote, southern... There was, like, a, a wave of southern restaurants at the mm-hmm. time. Oh, but yeah. it was, like, southern theme restaurants. And so if you walked in the door with something like Boiled Peanuts, something as, you know esoteric I guess as boiled peanuts it's like they knew what barbecue and fried catfish were but they had no idea what that was that's so yeah which is so Um, wild to me it is but you know it's changed and actually there was one restaurant which was amazing Cafe Beulah um, which was Alexander Smalls's restaurant um, in the Flatiron District it was extraordinary and it was in the um, mid 90s and he was doing beautiful work there and it was so crazy because it was like well we've got to go there Um, and literally no one had said like we know what this is not the chat and chew not like the what were the I can't remember the other southern restaurant Mm -hmm. they all had some like hokey name (laughs) and we walked into Cafe Beulah and Alexander was like, I'm from Orangeburg. I'm so glad you walked in my door. Oh, and we God. were just like, thank you. 
Oh my gosh. And he's been a kind of a mentor ever since. Sort oh of wow. Like a, well, that's a good a, mentor to a, pick out. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about your cookbooks. So there are three that there are, are three officially under the, yeah, the Lee Brothers, the Lee Brothers. Southern cookbooks. Um, and we, you know, we sold our first book in maybe 2002. Okay. And it didn't come out until 2006 because it, you know, it, we had a great editor, Maria Guarnaschelli, and she said, you really, our original idea was for a smaller book, sort of more about Charleston, mm-hmm. which is sort of the book that became our third book. Right. And she had the idea that was like halfway through, we turned the book in, we're like, we're done. And she was like, I think, you know, it needs to be like, nobody knows who you are. It needs, there hasn't been a big, like sort of encyclopedic Southern book for a while. And we'd just come off sort of three years traveling the Southeast for travel and leisure and food and wine. And, and we sort of wanted to metabolize that. And she said, I think you should make it a bigger pan Southern cookbook, do all the regions, do, and double the size of it, which since they weren't doubling the advance, we were like, oh gosh, we're, we, have, we have like, anyhow, it, that book took a, a, a long time to write, um, but it came out in 2006, and what was exciting about that, was, that book is that there, there, there was um, uh, a positive critical response, and um, the, the thing that was interesting was we taught a lot on the road with that book, okay. and a lot of people who didn't know about Southern food, a lot about Southern food who were sort of coming to the book because, you know, the subtitle was, it was the Lee Brothers Southern Cookbook, Stories and Recipes for Southerners and Would-Be Southerners because uh-huh. we wanted to come out on the cover that, like, and you're we're wood- not from the South. Right. Like, if you want to, if you want to, like Southerners think, if you're not born there, you're not from there. So, well, and like Twitter and Instagram now might have mercilessly like slayed right. you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we were slayed in our own hometown. Okay. Um, and other places. Um, you know, that really was the part part of what Maria, our editor, said is like, you, I want to be. She had never done a Southern book before, and she said, I want this to be the book that if someone you know feels intimidated by Southern food that they can come to it and feel mm-hmm. like, oh, this has a voice that welcomes me in even though you know and so there were a lot of people who are sort of coming to southern food and coming to our events and and cooking classes and being like I've never done this I didn't know it was so complicated you know because a lot of recipes in the in that book we were trying to you know we were sort of amassing all this knowledge that we'd gained from southern grandmothers because we didn't have our own southern grandmother and so they were super traditional, super long cooking, time consuming. And, and so yeah. everyone was just, we did have like quick knockouts, like a code for like ones that were 30 minutes or under. And so it, when it came time to do another book, um, we decided to do a book of all sort of the quick knockouts, the, like the easy weeknight Southern that we yeah. cook from day to day. And so that was where simple, the Lee Brothers Simple Fresh Southern book came okay. out. Okay, which is more contemporary recipes yeah. and flavors and ingredients. Yeah, weeknight and... cooking, but like not sacrificing the Southern flavor and the, the spirit and sort of. And then, so that came out in 2009. Then in 2013, we released the Lee Brothers Southern, the, the Lee Brothers Charleston Kitchen, which was going back to like the roots of the, the city that really made us who we are in the kitchen and and really calling out the people also who sort of influenced us okay you know it's sort mean, of our ch- chance to give tribute where tribute is due because again i don't have a southern grandmother so most everything i learned about 
the cooking of the South has been through someone else who was very generous with their knowledge and their mm -hmm. time. And I have a Southern grandmother who did not teach my mother to cook and has taught me a few things, mm -hmm. but I've most of my knowledge of Southern food yeah. has come through chefs and restaurants, honestly, yeah. about like the deeper yes. dive. My grandma taught me how to make peas. And frog and frog legs. She's from Florida, so there's right. like a swamp thing going right, on. Right. Um, and not those are like her things. Yeah. And like yeah. you know, like boiling vegetables with pork and and but actually and boiled and boiled peanuts. That's another. You know, it's so interesting that like I grew up in Charleston. I'll always be discovering new things about. Southern cooking because it's so vast. You're and gonna so, discover new things today. And so like multi, you know, it's it's just it's so exciting to be in this world because it's a constant discovery. Well, I'm introducing you today. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you you know you live through it, but to 1980s um, air quote oh. Southern cuisine yes. <laughs> through through the con through the context of the Southern of Southern living, which is. Uh, I think I probably learned to cook starting with Southern Living. We yeah. would get the magazines, they would come in. Right. I would, uh, in addition to cutting out house plans, that I would, you know, have a picket fence and 20 kids and all the things that never happened. Uh, wow. I would cut out recipes for my mom to cook or for yeah. me to cook with her. And so, but this cookbook is kind of crazy. So I picked out two casseroles from the book, a celery casserole with velouté, some water chestnuts and mushrooms, and then... I'm so excited. And then ca cabbage au gratin uh, from two South Carolina cooks. But those are not those are not things that were in your repertoire. Cabbage au gratin. They weren't necessarily in my repertoire <laughs> in the sense that it wasn't... Um, you know, my parents were New Yorkers. So right. my... The, that, those are the kind of... But, you know... What you're really talking about, if it's a 1983 Southern Living Cookbook, is recipes that sort of were from the mid-century. Um, and what's so crazy is to go to these sort of comb-bound Southern community cookbooks and find recipes, you know, that involve, like, Chinese noodles from a can. Oh, right. And taco filling. Oh. And canned taco filling. And it's so interesting how the mid-century in the South... I'd study this further if I had the time, but how did that, <laughs> how did that really, how did that play out? Because if you... It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's kind of fascinating because, you know, someone will be like, now this book is, I want you to see, this is the real Southern food. And then you go to it and you're kind of like, stir fries? And, and, and I'm not saying that's not a part of it. The mid-century had an effect. But it's so interesting because when I think of when someone says like this is the real Southern food, I think I'm going to be looking at cornbread and kilt lettuce and you know and that right. and, and and then you're looking at um, people underplay the amount that mid-century you know American cooking convenience cooking right the effect that it had on Southern cooking for you know, a generation or two well, or and that's, three and, and or that's, four. As far I mean, as cookbooks and recipes are concerned, I was trying to figure it out. And the only thing that I could rationalize, again, without doing extensive research, is that there were traditional cooks, mm -hmm. and they and traditional cooks didn't use recipes. Mm -hmm. These are things that are passed along generationally. And so at a certain point, outside of maybe community cookbooks, people didn't feel the need to have a recipe for 
X, Y, people cooked within right. their specialties. Right. But then these were this brand new world of recipes. You know, yeah. these were things that people yeah. actually needed recipes for. But yeah. we'll see about this cabbage. But, but I feel like I, I would just rather have the cabbage. You know? you know, I do feel like <laughs> casseroles seem to be affiliated with, like, the Midwest and the South and, um, I mean, sort of in an iconic way. Right. And I'm all for it. I'm just curious because, you know, I don't think... I was hoping you were going to give me answers. Know, the, the, <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm so sorry, but I won't. Um, but I, you know, I resist sort of judging, you know, I, I don't want to... I have a friend who's actually Sarah Gray Miller. She's the editor-in-chief of Sever, or the new editor-in-chief mm-hmm. of Sever. She makes a casserole that I contact... I knew you were going to be making content casseroles and I I contacted her because I thought you might ask me what my favorite one is it's this casserole that she makes that I could eat a whole pan of it's so good but it is you know it's chicken is the base mm-hmm. it's chicken florentine Ugh. So chicken florentine so chin- chicken yeah. spinach and it's like cream you, sauce what you do is you cut the you cut with a chef's knife, the end off of a green can of Parmesan, craft Parmesan cheese, you know, to, to, to put in the casserole. And there's mayonnaise, there's sour cream, and it's the best thing you ever put in your mouth. Oh my gosh, I need um, that recipe. It is from, oh, from the book Being Dead is No Excuse. The Methodist Ladies Chicken Lasagna Florentine. <sighs> um, you know, the story of how these recipes come into being and how they come into... In, into the culture and sort of find a place there and then you know 20 years later you're sort of like how did that get there and you know there is a story behind that and I think what's exciting about a lot of the work that's being done uh, southern food writing now is about reclaiming those stories and really finding out who is responsible for the recipes um, and uh, and there's better uh, scholarship being done right day to day to do that work um, and I think that's really exciting right and so I mean in this book in particular there are I think four recipes for the similar like Mexican rice casserole that, that my mom mm-hmm. made for me it's so good it's like green chili sour cream mm-hmm. cream of something rice cheddar tons of cheddar um, but that's probably the time in which people you know, middle-class white ladies were looking around and seeing a Mexican population start to emerge in certain parts of the South. And now Mexican food has really kind of interlaced itself with a lot of Southern cooking. And maybe this was the first, you know, attempt. Yeah, that was like the first, yeah. But what are, you know, I'd love to know the stories. Like, you know, who are the people who influenced the Southern white ladies? I don't know. Um, and how can we reclaim those stories, you know, that those stories? Because there's, you know, it's it's kind of, it's fascinating. Right. And as a woman, and, you know, trying to put meals on the table, some of the... Right. Right. And just trying to change it up and, right. and, and move forward. You know, culture moves forward. Cooking moves forward. Um, and, uh, you know, it's exciting to see, you know, new cookbooks sort of... Uh, looking to the past, but mm-hmm. also understanding that, like, this is a contemporary kitchen, so I'm going to adapt a recipe that is completely inspired by the past, but right. for a contemporary kitchen. And well, and so the other thing I'm making tonight is spoon bread, sausage awesome. spoon bread, and that, oh my gosh, the, from 
Princess Pamela's Soul Food. Yeah. And that's a project you worked on. Yes. It, it is. I mean, it is. I, I mean, Princess Pamela's Soul Food Cookbook was a, a cookbook published in 1969 mm-hmm. as a very flimsy paperback. Literally, like, if you remember, like, the Hardy Boys mysteries, like, that was the way it was published. And it was a hugely influential book. Um, I didn't even hear about the book until I think her restaurant had already closed. But she was a South Carolinian. um, Such a fascinating story. Pamela Strobel grew up in in Spartanburg, South Carolina in the 30s um, as the daughter of professional chefs. Her mother especially was a very um, accomplished uh, pastry chef trained in French cuisine um, oh, wow. for the, the elite restaurant in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, she was African-American. She was so talented that she ended up going to Boston and leaving her daughter, Pamela Strobel, with her mother in Spartanburg um, and going to Boston and cooking, being a pastry chef in Boston. So um, an African-American professional, you know, uh, a family of professional cooks, um, her mother tragically dies and then her grandmother tragically dies. And she basically cooks her way at age 13 to New York City, right? Um, through Winston-Salem and then Newport Beach and lands in... She ends up opening a restaurant in the mid-60s called The Little Kitchen in the East Village, which is one of, um, you know, it's a, a great migration story. She opened a restaurant that became like the southern restaurant in Man- in Manhattan in the 60s. And... Craig Claiborne was a huge fan. The underground gourmet guys, Milton Glaser was a okay. huge fan, and it had it had the um, atmosphere of sort of a speakeasy, okay. in the sense that there weren't many tables and there were was, you had to get a reservation, um, and and she cooked you know basically from her own kitchen, mm-hmm. and she had this. She and she, to the point where she published a cookbook in 1969. When I moved, Matt and I moved to New York City. When we were trying to sell boiled peanuts, one of the first places we went to was her place because we lived at 168 Ludlow, and she was at East First Street by that time. Okay. Just across from Katz's. Oh. And I mean, it was crazy. We landed in this apartment on Ludlow Street. And we were just like walking around the neighborhood, and it says Princess Pamela's Southern Touch Cuisine of South Carolina, and it was like it was so crazy. But we, you know, we knocked on the door, and she kind of pulled the curtain back, and she was like, "Oh no, I'm sorry. You know, it's by re- by reservation only. You know, I'm sorry." And then we, when we started boiling up peanuts, we brought some to her, and she was very nice and very cordial. But it it was very much a speakeasy kind of reservation only situation, so and she wild. performed. She was a jazz singer. What? Yes, and the restaurant closed in maybe nineteen around nineteen ninety eight, and. We never really found out where she went, but her her recipes in that book are truly great. And I hope I didn't screw it up. <laughs> no, they they the the thing was we later found out after her restaurant closed, she had published this book in sort of a wave of soul food books that came out in that in that time period, mm-hmm. and that it had influenced a generation of Southern chefs like Bill Neal, who always had ah. Princess Pamela's buttermilk pie on his menu. And most, you know, there are other chefs who he, he taught, like Amy Tornquist and Robert Stelling and uh, John Currents from The Grocery, who mm-hmm. sort of 
were influenced by Bill Neal, and they they all have sort of a buttermilk pie. And we were we were sensing that you know the the mentorship of that recipe itself was mm-hmm. being lost as it sort of, and we realized like we should bring this back. We should try to find out if anyone knows where she is. Yeah, and that was the impetus behind. I mean. It, Rizzoli had come to us and said, "We, you know, we know you have a really large collection of old cookbooks. We really think it'd be um, great to republish some ones that you think are classics." And that's how <sighs> this other project emerged, which is called the Lee Brothers Classic Library. And we do one book every couple years, okay, and bring what we perceive to be a classic back into production, in, into you know, into publication. And you know, it's challenging because there's the rights. You know, you have to chase down the rights, and then, you know, and Matt and I write the foreword to it. In this case, it was, the original was, I think I, did I bring my, um, I, I have one copy. Matt has the other, the two that are in good condition, mm-hmm. but I have the one that's, so you can see, I mean, I'm, obviously your listeners can't see, but it's literally like, pictures. it's four and a half, it's five inches by maybe six and a half um, it's uh, tiny, and yet it has these beautiful illustrations, and it has poetry as well. She had, um, she wrote sort of verse that was very much reflected who she was and her her life experience. So we wanted to bring it back in an edition that wouldn't change the recipes in any way, but would give it more heft and to guarantee that it wouldn't be lost. Because the thing is, this book that you're looking at... Right, I wouldn't pick that up. I mean, except the name is fabulous. But not only that, is like, even though this one is torn and broken and split in two, it's probably $200 on eBay. So the instinct of someone who owns this is not to lend it out. Right. right? And the whole point is, we need her story and her genius to be told. And it also, you know, tells the story of our journey to try to find where she ended up and the sad thing is we don't know where she ended up we still don't know so if any of your listeners have any insight we have a a, a, on facebook we have a thing called i remember princess um pamela and um and people post their photo if they have photos or if they have um and it's really cool and it worked exactly we 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 found some of her um uh, relatives in Spartanburg and mm-hmm. we did an event there when the book came out and they don't know what happened to her either but we're trying to sort of get as many people we know that someone out there knows what happened but her buttermilk pie lives on yeah you know it's it's so great I'm, I like this is this feels like a this feels like a book that I have that but I that's, must that I must but that's have, part of that right? larger project of reclaiming you know really saying who, you know, who influenced who. Right. right. Well, and that was another, you know, another thing I wanted to bring up. And and one thing that has thankfully changed in Southern cooking is recognizing mm-hmm. at, at the African-American contribution to... Absolutely. And that has to have affected your work. Abs- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like I was fortunate enough to write free cookbooks. I don't really feel like there's anything more that I can add from my perspective, but what I can do is try to um, be a resource for people who want to do the kind of research that needs to be done to do this reclamation work. Um, Are you still running your cookbook boot camps? Boot camp, yes. Okay, Yes. rad. Yes, because we developed that idea. There was a lot of chefs and food writers coming to us and being like, how does this book publishing thing work out? 
and since we've experienced every indignity known to man in the world of book publishing, we've had great success, which I'm <laughs> grateful for. I can hug every one of my books. I love it. Um, but there, it's a challenging world um, to navigate, um, and it's challenging to get your to get your foot in the door. And once you do get your foot in the door, it's challenging to to keep things on track and making sure you get the book that you want out of it. And I, I do think there's an urgency in doing um, doing the kind of work, the you know, the historical work, contextualizing, um, giving where credit is due, um, like it needs to happen now because you know we're losing stories we're losing and the threads people. and people um, who are, can make the connections for us. Um, so that's 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 I'm hopeful. So excited for what's to come, but your last project had nothing to do with Southern food. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct because... Of, Absolutely nothing. And I want to, well, talk, that, I want to make sure we That's a funny story because it sort of grew out of... We had a friend who's a Southern chef, Stephen Satterfield yes. of Miller Union. Mm-hmm. And he was cooking at the Beard House in New York City on... Uh, this was actually in 2011, I think. And he... Uh, we had the opportunity to observe him in that kitchen, which, as you know, is kind of small. Kind of, just a, yeah. it's. <laughs> um, I mean, it's small for the the amount of work that needs to happen Correct. in it. Um, and he had brought in a friend who he knew through kind of indie rock circles, who was the executive chef of a catering company in New York City to mm-hmm. sort of help him. And they crushed it. They did an amazing job, and they were resourceful in ways that I don't think. Um, Certainly, me and Matt, but I don't think Stephen and his, you know, they like ran out of, they had two seared courses back to back a quail and an oxtail crepinette. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a rabbit and an oxtail crepinette. And there wasn't enough griddle space, so they just like threw a sheet pan down on the burners and just like cranked them up on the stove. And used a sheet and pan. And just used a sheet pan to sear an oxtail crepinette. Like, you know, that's a minced oxtail wrapped in um, call fat fat, right and it was just like this is amazing and so we went for beers after the after the thing we were just celebrating it was a great night you know that was before Stephen won his James Beard award he's now won James Beard award um and uh they said you gotta understand like that was 75 people we don't get stressed out until it's 750 and we just were just like what? Like, you, you did this for 750 <laughs> guests? Like, what are you even doing? And they, they sort of broke it down for us. And they said, the first thing you have to understand is, like, everything is par-cooked and then finished on site. Because we don't have our own, you know, we have our commissary kitchen, but our company doesn't have, like, one venue. It's like every night is a different right. venue. And so we load in the, the quote-unquote kitchen, and, you know, the kitchen being most most of the proteins that are finished at big gala events in New York are like seared in the commissary kitchen the day of or the day before and then rewarmed in a hot box. Hot box is an aluminum transport cabinet on wheels that transports food around a kitchen or a walk-in and that's what it usually does in other parts of the country. In New York, since you can't use propane, and you usually can't use the electricity in any most any venue in New York because you'd shut down the circuitry or you'd set off the fire alarm. I mean, it's against the law to mm-hmm. use propane in any. You have to use the 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 fudge is using sternos and 
hot boxes to rewarm parts Slash of bring food. things to yeah. temp. Yeah, and anyone who knows anything about food safety knows that you have to be very careful in that kind of environment. You can't let food sit in the danger zone. And so Matt and I were just hearing all this and just being like, we need to, we, we need to spend some time with you guys. It would be great. So we said, oh, you know, can we follow, you know, could we trail you or something? And they said, you know what, in these things, there's really not room for a trail. Like if you want to join you can join the team. And so that's kind of what we did. And, and uh, that, our most re- recent book is a, a book called Hotbox, which sort of metabolizes um, the three and a half years we spent. So wild. Sort of undercover in the catering industry. And it was fascinating. The subtitle is, the book is Hotbox, and the subtitle is Inside Catering, the Food World's Riskiest Business. So how, um, I mean... Takeaways for home cooks, people who are mm-hmm. listening. I mean, what are some yeah. of the ways that it oh, affected the way you it's cook? It totally changed the way I cook in the sense that I, I always used to do things for parties to order. You know, like I'm going to like pull cornbreads out of the oven and slice them for my guests. Like your guests don't want to see you work. And that difference between like two order cornbread and warm cornbread that you served that you baked earlier in the day, like get over that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you really want to serve things that hold well because your guests want to spend time with you. They don't want to see you labor. Um, and that's what really changed, you know, I got me comfortable like holding food. Mm-hmm. Like how do you hold food? Whether it's a salad, whether it's, you know, and it's all about organization, which before working in catering, I didn't bring to my kitchen practice. Okay. I was, I was, <laughs> I, my brother's, my brother's more organized than I am, but I, I was, I was the guy who just made a mess of the kitchen. Okay. And I had to bring that sort of. They trained it out of you. Under control. Uh, holidays are coming up. We'll finish with uh, your essential cookbooks for the for Southern cooking in particular. Oh, my gosh. Do you have a list? I don't have a list of essentials because they're all they're always changing. Well, tell me. If, um, like, but I, I, I do. Here's one that, 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 um, that I think is sort of flies under the radar. It's mm-hmm. the... American Cooking Southern Style in the Time Life series. It's okay. by Eugene Walter, and I forget who did the photographs, but it's a real culture book. It was so far ahead of its time. It was He went around to different regions of the South and really had, like, sat down with families mm-hmm. and photographed their dinners. Wow. And really brings a portrait of South, Southern, so not South Carolina, Southern food that's mm-hmm. really diverse. Um, from the perspective of 1967 or 64, wow, whenever okay. it came out, and it's really good, and you can get it um, on, um, you know, from old booksellers and stuff. Okay. Um, what's another? Um, all of Edna Lewis's books are amazing. But I know. There's... Taste of Country Cooking is just. I mean, it's so it's talk really about hard techniques. It's like oh, and the chicken, and you just let it sit there on the pan, and it's for hours, and it's right. and like so. T- I'm terrified. It's, it's really like very specific. It's very specific, but it's it's also it's very um, it's very essential. I mean, it's very right. much the foundational. Um, there's so many t- techniques you can learn, but you also have this portrait of how you know growing up in the rural South and the rituals around you know hog killing and just, collecting lettuces. This, and, the sensu- yeah. sensuality of it is extraordinary. I I think you know a newer book like um, Natalie Dupree. Um, and Elizabeth Grabart's Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking. Like, mm-hmm. that's a, you know, that's a, you know, that's sort of like mastering the art of Southern cooking. 
it's just funny because when Matt and I went to do our first book and we were working on the proposal, and there were so many people who were like, ugh, another Southern cookbook. Like, what can you possibly <laughs> tell me <laughs> the about season, the South? Right. And that was, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. Um, and honestly, I feel like the more I get books, the more I'm the happier I am and the closer I feel mm-hmm. to it to the material and the there's so much deliciousness to come out of this place and um so many great stories and um you know and everyone's always like well like you know do I need another cookbook on my shelf and it's like nobody says that about romance novels right. or books of poetry I mean to me these are my films you know so this is what you know this is this is the album Right. And so, you know, I'll, I'll be the collecting these until, you know. I think your apartment's a little larger than mine. Just a little bit. <laughs> it may be. It may be. It may be, but I we also to, have, I also have my collection. an office in Charleston. I have my brother. I can pawn off some stuff on him. I mean, you know, our cookbooks are scattered throughout, but we do, I think we're up in the thousands or two thousand. Well, I'm, I'm very curious to see uh, whether you think that uh, this Southern Living cookbook should be a classic based on the two very limited. <laughs> I'm very looking, much looking forward to it, too. Are we going to taste them yeah. on air? Yeah, we're going to do. No, um, yes, we're going we're gonna to wrap here. And okay. then I'm going to drag Great. the mic over to the table. Okay. Awesome. All right, let's eat. Let's eat, for sure. It's dinner time. So the cabbage is the trashiest of them all. It's, um, in what way? It has cream of celery soup. It has cream of celery soup. Cream oh of celery God. soup and cheese and milk and and I just boiled the cabbage for five minutes and put it in the bottom of the pan and then topped it with this mixture. That's it. And then the celery, I blanched the celery, chopped up water chestnuts, which is such a weird addition. My mom used to just like broth them in bacon, but I don't really have any other context for yeah. eating them. Um, and then that's top of velouté and some. I use canned mushrooms. I usually saute them, but I was like, fuck it, we'll do them out of a can. Right. Get some Parmesan. And then the spoon bread, sauteed sausage, uh, two cups tomatoes, uh, onion, celery, and um, milk, and then some eggs. Really, that's basically it. I have to say, I've done the cabbage. Mm-hmm. I'm now on the pork. Okay. These are totally my comfort zone <laughs> this is <laughs> this is heaven the pork is really the pork is really interesting the pork is it's almost really like, good <laughs> it's like i'm getting a very tamale filling vibe oh you're right it had a ton of dried um, sage but yeah what is the what are the spices in it? it's just sage mm-hmm. that's it it's just no allspice no allspice but that could be the sausage mm-hmm. um my um, assessment I th- What's I'm, your? I don't think I think the celery is my least. I think you're. Let me taste the celery. I mean, there's definitely texture, but it, it's pretty bland, as celery is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I see what you're saying. I made sure to get a crispy edge. Okay. <laughs> and there's something about the crispy edge that concentrates. I don't. I, I mean, the mm-hmm. cabbage I would make again. It is. This is the um, water chestnuts and such. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't think I even know what a water chestnut is. No, I, I've looked that up before. They're from Asia, mm-hmm. and they grow in like in the wild. They grow in like running water, mm-hmm. like yeah. cold mountain streams. 
I'll fact check that, but I'm pretty I, sure. Um, because I, I understand. It seems like people put them in the casseroles for the textural contrast. Mm-hmm. But I don't love it. Like, I like the contrast of the crispy edge. You know, but yeah. the, there's something about the water chestnut that just feels... Now that I'm thinking about this combination of the chestnuts, the celery, and the mushrooms, and the almonds, it all seems like, no, even like some vaguely Chinese people are like, oh, these are Chinese people. I don't, maybe not, though. Why celery? I like a good braised mm-hmm. celery, so I thought this would be interesting, but... I'm, mm-hmm. eating, I'm eating all of yeah. mine, as, I, as, you, as you can see. Um, but thank you for these casseroles. It's thank you for coming. I get, I get um, to record a podcast and get dinner. Well, that's the magic of Cream of Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> that is the magic. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to the magic of the cream this week. You can follow Ted and his brother Matt on Instagram at the Libros. And, of course, you can find all of their books online or, better yet, in your local bookstore. We just have two episodes left in Season 2 with this amazing 1983 Southern Living Cookbook. I will see you and feed you next week. Until then, keep it creamy. Keep it creamy.